We're, we're in the middle of a series called Arriving, and it's a series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is chapter, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 uh, in your Bible. And so we're going to be working our way through this all the way up until October. We'll have a couple of Sundays that we'll be off from the series, and we'll do some special things. We might even have a Sunday in the park sometime this summer. Um, but, but overall, we'll be working our way slowly through this Sermon on the Mount. And we've called it Arriving because... This is all about, this sermon is all about the kingdom of God arriving. Now, when we think about the kingdom of God, we tend to make one or two uh, typical mistakes about our thinking with this. Sometimes we could say, oh, the kingdom of God, that's when God comes and gets us out of here so we can go to that other place. And Matthew's gospel calls the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven. And so we've been sort of programmed to think of heaven as that place that we fly away to. But what Matthew's saying is not that the kingdom of God is our escape to heaven, but rather is heaven's invasion of earth. The other maybe mistake we think of when we think of the kingdom of God is to think, oh, the kingdom of God, that's how everything on earth is going to get better and better and better until one day we have a whole new world. No, that, my friends, is the myth of progress. And what Christians believe is not an escape, nor is it the inevitable progressive uh, uh, um, improvement of the world. Instead, what we believe is that God, the God of heaven, has come and interrupted the course of human history, has stayed true to his promises that we're building up all through the Old Testament, and Jesus arrives on earth and says, I am the one. I'm the culmination of the promise. I have brought the reign of God here. So the Sermon on the Mount, then, is all about how we live in light of this inbreaking kingdom, if Jesus really is king, if his kingdom really has begun to arrive, what's new? What's different? What happens as a result? Most of the famous passages of the Sermon on the Mount are, are things that you and I kind of hear like rules. And so we're going to get to the passages where Jesus says, you have heard, do not commit murder. But I say to you, do not even hate and most of us try to avoid those passages because we think, oh my goodness, new law, how can I cope with this? Next Sunday, I'm going to talk about the, the verses where Jesus says, look, this is the law, and this is what I've come to do with the law, and this is what it means for you. So we're going to get into all of that next Sunday. But here's the thing I want you to see. Jesus takes a lot of time in the preamble of his sermon. It actually makes me feel pretty good because I tend to take a long time in the preamble of my sermon. <laughs> But Jesus has been setting this up very carefully. The first thing he says is the Beatitudes. And he says, look, blessed are the poor and the meek and the hungry and all of this stuff. And then he says, you are the salt of the earth. And then now you are the light of the world. Here's what Jesus is doing, everybody. Jesus wants to set your identity before he talks about the way you live. Jesus wants you to know that being comes before doing. So many of us as Christians, we rush ahead to the doing. Okay, I got saved. Now what am I supposed to do? Okay, I got to go to church. Okay, I got to go to a Bible study. Okay, I got to download Right Now Media. Just kidding, uh, Evan. And all the things I have to do. And Jesus says, no, listen, I want you to learn who you are. I want you to hear what you are. And so we said, okay, in the first week we said, well, one of the first things we are is we are the called, we are the disciples. And by being the called, this is a transforming call that changes us. 
from the inside out. And then in week two, when we talked about the Beatitudes, we said, you know what the gospel says? The gospel says you are the blessed ones. In spite of being whom the, world call, the ones whom the world calls poor and weak and powerless, Jesus says, no, this kind of life wins in the end. The peacemakers, the meek, those who long for righteousness and justice. So we're the called, we're the blessed. And this morning, Jesus says, you are the salt and you are the light. What does this mean? What does it mean for Jesus to say that we are the salts of the earth and that we are the light of the world? The first thing I want you to know about this text is that when the you there is plural. Uh, There's not a good way to convey this in English except to say, y'all. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Y'all are the light of the world. I can't imagine Jesus saying it like that. But that's the first thing we need to realize. That this light, this salt, is not something you are on your own. When I was a kid, I grew up singing the song, This little light of mine. Come on. I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Great song. Had many touching moments with it in children's ministry. (laughs) Candles and whatnot, right? But here's the thing. What Jesus wants us to know is that this light is not just mine, but ours. It's who we are together. And, and the salt of the earth. There wasn't a catchy jingle to that one. I don't know why. This little salt. I, you know. But the salt that we are is something that we are together. It's something that Jesus has made us. All right, so let's talk about salt first. The salt of the earth. What does it mean to be the salt? Now, there's several qualities about salt that different commentaries, if you, if you read them, they'll say, oh, well, it's, it's this and it's this, and there's several different things about it. But do you know one of the, the inescapable qualities, things about salt, especially in the first century, is that it was indispensable to everyday life. It was indispensable. You needed it, not just for flavor, but you needed it to preserve raw meat. You used it in, a, in many different ways. It was how newborn babies were rubbed in salt. I don't exactly know why, but it was part of everyday life. And one of, maybe one of the core things that Jesus is trying to say by calling the church, by calling his followers the salt of the earth, is that we are vital to the world. The church is vital to the world. Now this sounds like such a strange thing, especially in a day and an age where the church or Christians are being pushed to the side and sort of said, we don't need you, we don't want you, we don't want your voice. And Jesus lived in a day when that was how all people of faith were, were, were treated. They were pushed to the margins. And can you imagine to a ragtag bunch of country bumpkin followers of Jesus along the Galilean countryside listening to this teacher and him saying, you are vital to the world. And they're thinking, uh, what? We're not really that important. Like Most people don't even know we're here. And Jesus says, no, you're vital to the world. Why? In the same way that salt is necessary to everyday life. One of the, the, the functions of salt that we keep, uh, several commentaries kept pointing back to is the preserving quality of it. 
That salt has a way of preserving something from decaying, preserving meats from decaying. And this is why Jesus says, look, if salt ever loses its saltiness, what good is it for? It doesn't have taste, it doesn't have flavor, it can't preserve. Now, some of you are science people. And first of all, I respect that because I'm not a science person. But secondly, you're probably thinking, hey, Glenn, salt can't lose its saltiness. Like sodium chloride, pretty stable compound, just doesn't happen. I guess it's a nice little Christianese metaphor. It's just not true. I've got a little story for you. In the world of the first century where Jesus lived by the Dead Sea, that Dead Sea evaporation turned into these white little crystals. And they would fall all over the side of the road, and they looked very much like salt. In fact, they very likely could have been called salt. And so some people might have gathered it up thinking, look at this salt only to find that what they had in their hands was not salt, but this corrupted substance that had some of the qualities of salt, but other things, other added things to it. And so lost its purity and therefore lost its saltiness. Looked like salt, was called salt, was not salt. You think Jesus is saying, there is a way that you could look like my followers, be called Christians, and yet have lost the very thing that makes you distinctive. Too much has been added in. Too much has been added to your faith, to your life, that it's lost its distinctiveness. This phrase, to lose its saltiness, is kind of an idiom. It's an idiomatic expression. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians when he says, God made the the wisdom of this world to be foolish. Salt that loses its saltiness is an expression to say something that has been made to be foolish. Could it be that Jesus is saying the disciples who lose their distinctiveness are, seen, are shown to be foolish? No longer with the wisdom of God working in the world, preserving the world, but rather foolishness. Salt, when we talk about it this morning, we're going to say it's a preserving presence. A preserving presence in the world. Light of the world. In Matthew's Gospel, light has this very special character to it. It's kind of a sign of the Messiah. What do I mean by this? Early in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew 2, there's a big light that appears in the sky that leads the Magi to Jesus, right? Then in Matthew 4, Matthew quotes Isaiah and he says, The people sitting in darkness have seen a great light. And then Jesus stands up and he says, You are the light of the world. Later on in Matthew 10, Jesus will say, everything that I'm telling you in secret, you're going to shout out publicly. In other words, light speaks to us of being a visible witness. If salt is this preserving presence that's maybe hidden or scattered, then light is about being this visible witness, this thing that shines, this thing that cannot be hidden. When you think of the light of the world, even in a nature sense, what do you think of? The sun. And you see how ludicrous it is to say you're the light of the world and, and yes, you, you can't be hidden. Like, right. It's pretty hard to escape the power of this ray, the power of this beam. Light is Matthew's way of saying a new age has begun. A new day has dawned. Jesus is King. There was a group of people also in the first century who called themselves sons of light, children of light. They were the Qumran community. 
The Qumran community is this community that removed themselves from culture, from society. If you've ever seen a Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit, you know we have the Qumrans to thank for the preservation of many of these scrolls. But here's the thing. They call themselves sons of light, but they withdrew from society. Jesus is saying, you know what it really means to be the light of the world? It means you're visible. It means you're not hidden. It means you're not retreating to a special secret place. It means you're not going away somewhere else to kind of do your thing. It has to be visible. Say, all right, that's what it means to be salt and light, to be a preserving presence, to be a visible witness. That's great. But, But why, Glenn? I mean, why would Jesus say this? Why does he call us this? Why does he say this is what the church is? The first reason, I think, is simply for the sake of the world. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about salt and light, both the things he he points out about salt and light are about their usefulness to the world, right? Salt that is not salty is useless. Light that is hidden is useless. So flip it around the other way. To be salt and to be light has a certain usefulness for the world. Again, the church is vital for the world. What does it really mean to believe this? What does it mean to really say that we are vital, we are necessary, we are here to be salt and light, we are here to do this for the sake of the world? Our Old Testament reading came from Jeremiah 29. Now most of us, if you're good kind of, you know, uh, evangelical. There's one verse you know out of Jeremiah 29, right? And it's Jeremiah 29, 11, about, for I know the plans I have for you to give you hope and a future, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, right? You've seen it on a magnet somewhere. (laughs) But right before that verse, do you know all of Jeremiah 29, the bulk of it is God, it's a letter that Jeremiah is writing to these people as they're being carried off into captivity, Why don't we put that on the refrigerator, you know? (laughs) They're being carried off into exile. And this is what God says to Jeremiah. He says, you tell them to buy houses and plant gardens. You tell them to find spouses and to marry and to stay and to have children and grandchildren. Now, this is already crazy. Because if you were a good Israelite, a good Jew... You would say, no, listen, if we're going into exile, this has got to be temporary, right? Surely God's plan is not for us to live in someone else's country. Surely God's plan is to reclaim it, to make us, to make Jerusalem great again. What do you mean, buy a house and plant a garden? I don't plan on being here very long. This is my problem with a lot of those early American hymns about, I'm just a passing through, this world is not my home. Sweet by and by, I'll fly away. See, God says the opposite. He says, no, invest in this place. Nurture this place. Cultivate this place. Because this place is where you are. The very worst thing for a Christian is to be in the world and be no good to the world. What we are here for is to make things flourish. And then God says through Jeremiah, he says, listen, I want you to seek The welfare. Do you know what that word is? It's the Hebrew word shalom. You've heard this word before. And maybe you've even known that shalom, we pray for shalom for a city, but it's not Babylon. What's the city we pray for the peace of? Even you know that. Think how much they knew that. Their whole lives, all their lives, they'd grown up saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And all of a sudden God says, 
Pray for the shalom of Babylon. What? That wicked, perverse, vulgar, corrupt city? No way am I... I'm going to pray a curse on Babylon. No, 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 no. Babylon's about to be your home for a very long time. Are you drawing any parallels? Seek the peace of it. Cultivate the ground around you. Make things better than they were before. Timothy Keller is a pastor in New York City. Been there for a couple decades now. Has a church of, of 20-somethings and 30-somethings primarily you know, in Manhattan. And he loves to ask the question, if the church leaves a city, will the city only miss our words or will they also miss our deeds? What will they miss about us? Have we made this very ground better ground? Have we gardened here? Have we cultivated here? Have we, have we earnestly prayed for the flourishing, the shalom of this place? See, it's very popular to curse America. It's very popular to curse our culture. It's very popular to curse the world or to curse government or to curse leadership. But you know what's truly countercultural is to say we are the salt of the earth. Lord Jesus, for your sake and for the sake of this place, come on and help me cultivate it. Come on and help me see this place flourish. You know, many of you are involved with a program called Kids Hope Mentoring at Queen, Queen Palmer Elementary. Some of you here that do this. You give one hour a week to mentor a student at Queen Palmer Elementary. And you've heard maybe Pastor Bobby Nicholas talk about this. You know what's kind of cool? Is Queen Palmer was just awarded a national honor award. One of only six given out in the nation. They won this Recognition Merit Award, um, I think, <laughs> in part because there, was, there were mentors that were meeting with children. There's no doubt there were school teachers. There probably are school teachers here that teach there, that are a preserving presence. But I just want to say for all of you who were involved in the Kids Hope Mentoring Program, that you have been a preserving presence in that school. See it now flourish. Could you imagine that? School teachers, business people, all the different spheres of life saying, here we are, a preserving presence. For the sake of the world, but also for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Jesus ends this section by saying, look, they're going to see your good works and they're going to glorify our Father in heaven. You know what's funny? Is in Matthew 6, I think, Jesus will say, don't do your good works to be seen by men. Now this is one of those where we're like, wait a minute, Jesus, I'm so confused. Do I want them to see my good works or not see my good works? I think if you look at it, you know, even with just plain reading it, you'll see later on Jesus is going to say, don't do your good works so that you can be praised. Don't do them in order to be seen by men. But here in Matthew 5 he's saying, as you are this visible witness, let them see it because then they're going to glorify me. My Father in heaven. Don't go into the world and shine this light so that you'll be successful and famous and well. No, do this to seek the glory of God. How do we live this way? How do we really live this way? To be salt and light. What does this look like maybe in our homes? What does it look like as families, as parents trying to raise children? How, how, how does this take shape? I do think there are specifics about this that you 
have to be prayerful about with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what I mean? That this isn't the kind of thing... I, I think it's, it's wonderful that Jesus, in the rest of the sermon, gives us things about our hearts and the way they're supposed to be, but he doesn't list off a whole bunch of different rules because then that'd just be like the righteousness of the Pharisees. So I think for all of us, you need to say, okay, God, so what does it mean for our family to be salt and light? Well, maybe we'll make these choices and not these ones. Or maybe for my life, what does it mean for... For us, a group of students in a college camp, what what does it look like for us to be salt and light? Well, maybe we'll be this way and not this way. Certain choices. I love the uh, idea in Deuteronomy 6 where it says, you know, you disciple your children not just with like little Bible studies, but, but by walking with them all along the way. When you lay down to sleep, when you rise up to walk, when you go to work, all these conversations along the way that remind us who we are. To say, hey, listen, you're, you're a child of God. We don't, this is, God has given us the strength to live above this. So what does it look like at work, in the workplace? Where you are, maybe in the finance sector or in the entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur. How can we, how can we do this? I mean, is this possible? There's, um, there's a little bit of an impression that sometimes we get from the church world that to be truly a follower of Jesus, you need to work for a church or a ministry. That inevitably your maximum com- level of commitment will be shown when you, you go into vocational ministry. And as much as I'd like to believe that, I don't think that's true. I think we are meant to be out in the world, visible. But it's not without its complications, isn't it? There are many people who say, well, I went into the corporate world. I've talked to you know, a few guys in their 40s and 50s. When I was in my 20s, I went into the world because I wanted to be salt and light. And then all of a sudden I found myself that I was like implicated with these different injustices or, or unethical practices. And I didn't quite know how to extricate myself out of that, but this is part of the deal and I'm trying to be salt and light and I've got to be different. But it's just, it, Look, it's, it's a lot easier to live like the Essenes in the Qumran community did, to go huddle away. That's clean. But Jesus says that's not the way I define cleanness. Remember we talked about this in the Beatitudes? I don't define purity, Jesus says, by whom you exclude. I define purity by being made new on the inside. And then you go out into Sometimes we get the idea that, like, you know, to, to follow Jesus, you've got to sort of hate the suburbs. You can't work for corporate America. Man, you sell out. You work for who? Oh, corporate white collar. I just want you to know <laughs> that there is something called the Protestant work ethic. Because Christians for a lot of years has, have believed that to be salt and light is to go into this place and to be ten times better than the world. To go into it and to excel. To go into it and thrive. To go into it and, and, and not just set the bar, but change the game. That's what you're called to be. And I, there is a little bit of, of unease, I think, with our... With, with 20-somethings who are kind of, you know, like, I don't know if I want to just, I don't want to do the typical thing, like go to college, get a job, like, ew. (laughs) 
I just, I'd rather God just show me the radical choice. I just love John the Baptist eating locusts and honey. <laughs> yet Jesus keeps sending us out into the world. And yet Jesus keeps saying, you go. Salt, scatter it. Go. Light, let it shine. Go. How can we be a preserving presence in the world if we keep retreating from it? How can we be a visible witness in the world if we keep wanting to stay in Christian-only settings, Christian-only whatevers? Why not go in, work hard, excel, say, God, I'm, I, there, there are some shortcuts I'm not going to take. There are some choices I'm not going to make. But God, I'm going into this place. Bless the work of our hands. Let, it, let others see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Amen? Don't cloak laziness and indecision in the name of God. Is that okay to say straight up? Don't call it like I'm just seeking God, but really you're lazy. Don't say I'm waiting for the voice of God. When really God's saying, just choose. Go. Can I get an amen? All right. Let's talk about the way we are salt and light. The way. What do I mean by this? You know, you can't separate this passage, we are salt and light, you are the salt. You can't separate it from the Beatitudes. Meaning this whole thing has to be taken together. The way we are different in the world has a lot to do with what Jesus just finished saying. The poor in spirit, the meek, the peacemakers. Oh, Glenn, now you're really asking us to be countercultural. Right. I keep thinking that it is inevitable that part of being salt and light is it's going to sting people who disagree just a little bit. Martin Luther, when he was talking about being the salt of the earth, he said, you know, salt bites. It stings a little. Jesus just finished saying, blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. And then what does he say? He said, all the prophets had that happen to them before. What's he saying? He's saying, you remember the prophets? You guys are now a prophetic community. You're a prophetic community. That means, what do the prophets do? They always challenge the establishment. Now, this is where I can get an amen from some of my 1960s people, you know. Anti of Jesus, they, they, the prophets always challenge the institutions and the establishment. And Jesus is saying, you guys, as my people together, you will be a challenge to the people of power. You're meant to be. Salt bites a little bit. I keep thinking about this horrific Gosnell trial. Any of you followed it? The verdict came out. It's gra- graphic details about an abortion clinic, I think in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, somewhere, am I right? And all of the details that have come out of it, and, and he's found guilty of, of you know, killing three babies, but we all know there's loads more. And I keep wondering, what does it mean to be salt in this kind of a world? What does it mean to, for the church to be a preserving presence that restrains the decay of a world that has rejected God? I'm telling you, it, it may be uncomfortable to admit it, but I, I don't think... Whether, whether our, despite our history of having these Christian sort of things that shaped the beginnings, 
despite that, here we are today where it's sort of, it's more pluralistic than that. And so we may not get, quote, things the way you want it to be in politics, but are there other ways we can be salt in the earth? Are there other ways we can pull back the decay? Part of the voice of Christians being the voice of love and adoption. Part of the voice of Christians turning back the foster, or, or, or helping to empty out some of the foster care system. You, you remember this initiative that the governor of Colorado said, one congregation, one family. And the goal was, he said, there's a thousand homeless families. He says, there's a thousand congregations. Could we help these different homeless families? It, within ten years. I think within seven or eight years, over a thousand families, by his stats, have been helped and found their way into permanent housing. Are there different ways that we can be a preserving presence within the world to hold back the decay of the world? What kind of society makes God's nail possible? What kind of church makes those choices difficult? What kind of church makes other choices more possible? But being a prophetic voice is not the same as being an obnoxious sound. You heard from my wife last week, I think it was... Eight or nine years ago, she was in grad school at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. She was doing her master's in counseling. And, and if you've been in a counseling program, you know that a big part of the program is you're going to be in groups, you know, and you're going to take turns kind of counseling one another. Yippee. And um, so there was this lady in her group that carefully, you know, over time was talking about these challenges with her, with her boyfriend. And she kept talking about this, and, you know, and this group is slowly building up trust with one another and and finally, one day, this lady says, actually, you guys, I've been saying my boyfriend. It's, it's really my girlfriend. And right away, someone from the group spoke up and said, well, I'm a Christian, and I don't agree with that. That's not being salt and light. Being a prophetic voice is not the same as being an obnoxious sound, feeling the need. Listen, the world is the world. <laughs> The church is the church. What's the difference between a prophetic voice and an obnoxious sound? You remember that verse, famous verse in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a clanging symbol. Boom. Boom. How many times do we engage the world, not out of love, but out of fear that the world is changing? How much that motivates Christian social action is not truly because we love and want to help, but because we're afraid. Oh God, don't take my 1940s America away. Don't undermine my Victorian worldview. <laughs> and all we really mean is, I'm scared. The world is changing and I'm scared. So I'm going to protest and pick it and be this and all, you know, all this stuff and I'm going to... All in the name of taking a stand for Christ? I'd like you to reconsider that. We don't take a stand for Christ by calling the world what the world is. Maybe if love was really the motivation, the first step we would take is toward listening. We can all do a better job of that, right? We hear that the homosexual conversation, we hear it through the ears of choice 
and values. But there's a lot of people who hear it through the lens of identity. Now, you may disagree with that lens, but you've got to understand why we keep talking at different levels. It's hard to engage when we won't listen. What if our engagement with the world was not fueled by fear or anger, but by genuine Christ-like love? What if our engagement with the world was not motivated by fear or anger, but genuine Christ-like love? What if our way is the spirit of grace and truth, the spirit of Christ Himself, and not the spirit of this age? At this point, you're probably saying, okay, Glenn, I thought it was difficult before, and now I think it's impossible. <laughs> now I think there's too many nuances. I don't know how to be salt and light. I can't do it. It's impossible. I can't live this way. And maybe, if we're really honest, it's because somewhere deep inside we sort of think, I can't change myself. <laughs> I, I would like to be different than the world, but I kind of feel like I'm the same, and I don't know how to make myself different. The good news for you this morning is you're right. You can't make yourself different. You can't. I've talked often of that scene in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader where Eustace keeps, he, he's this boy who's become a dragon because his exterior has, has manifested what his interior really is. So his heart has been dragon-like and mean and, and so his body becomes like a dragon. And he keeps trying to rip the scales off and it kind of works but then the scales grow back. And finally, Aslan, the Christ figure in the Narnia stories, comes and rips it off. But the tearing is painful. But it's only Aslan who can tear the dragon's skin off. It's only Jesus who makes us different. You see, Jesus calls us salt and light because He is salt and light. Jesus is God working from within His world to preserve it, to save it, to redeem it. Jesus is the light, the visible revelation of God in our world, shining the truth for all to see. Jesus will say in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. It's only true about us because it's true about Him. We are salt and light because Jesus is the gospel is not behave better and then you'll be a Christian. We cannot approach the Sermon on the Mount that way. We cannot say, okay, I've got to live this way and then I'll truly be a Christian. The gospel is I have adopted you. I've made you a son and a daughter. And because I have, you can now live this way. Today is Pentecost Sunday. I said that earlier. And what that means for us with regard to this sermon is this. In the Old Testament, the Feast of Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks after Passover, when they would, they would celebrate the giving of the Torah, the giving of God's instructions for living. Do yourself a favor, and, and, and when you see the word law, say instructions, say teaching, don't say rules. That'll help you understand the Old Testament a lot better. God gives Israel instructions for living, teaching on how to live, but they still couldn't live this way. And so in the New Testament, God says, I know, and I've been waiting for this moment because now all who are in Christ get to receive not just instructions for living, but the power to live. And He pours out His Holy Spirit. Church, what I want you to know is 
When you ask yourself, how could I be salt and light? You say, first, it's because this is who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done. And then you say, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, I now have the Holy Spirit. You have the power to live this way. You have the power to walk into your workplace every day, to go on business trips, to walk into your homes, to walk into your schools, to walk around your neighborhoods and to say, okay, Lord, Fill me up with your power again today so that I might be who you say I am. Salt and light. This doesn't come by white knuckling it and saying, I'm going to try to be salt today. This is the trick with the this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Jesus is saying, this is a great giant big light of mine and I will let it shine through you. And all we are saying is, all right, well, come Holy Spirit, do it, Lord. Your great, ginormous light, let it shine through me. Let's pray. You bow your heads and just quietly where you are, begin to confess before the Lord and to say, Lord, I'm sorry for trying on my own. I'm sorry for sort of taking this into self-effort or self-improvement. Maybe for some of us we need to say, I'm sorry, Lord, for not embracing the power that You've given us. The cross, the Holy Spirit. Maybe we need to say, Lord, forgive me for being like the foolish disciple. The disciple who's lost its distinctiveness. Forgive me for sort of just kind of running around willy-nilly in the world, just living foolishly. We want to be wise. We want to be what you say we are. Just quietly where you are, begin to confess.